Welcome in, everyone. It is Thursday, November 4th, 2021, and welcome to State of the Family Courts. Uh, so we had a guest scheduled to come on tonight, uh, but uh, being a lawyer sometimes happens, so we had to reschedule them. I'm really excited to have her on, uh, but we thought we'd take this opportunity uh, to have another uh, Q&A. So we will, um, tonight, we'll spend 45 minutes to an hour just answering uh some questions uh, in regards to family court, uh, child support, child custody. Um, so I know we've done it a couple times in the past, so uh, get your questions in the comments on uh, Facebook or YouTube. And uh, I think uh, diving into that, I, I've seen something recently that I, I think needs to be addressed within, within our community, within the equal and shared parenting community. And um, it's something I actually saw on on Monday. So I was I was in court telephonically on Monday with a client, and we're sitting there on the phone. We are waiting for our case to be heard. And the case just prior to ours, the the father was actually granted full legal and physical custody, and the mother was not happy about that. It's a situation where she's claiming that not unlike many individuals who are watching this show, uh, claiming that the father had been withholding the child from her for a period of several years. And she was clearly knowledgeable of the law. She clearly done her research. And she went on about a, a five-minute rant uh, about all the federal lawsuits she was going to file, how she demanded the judge recuse themselves, um, and all these, all these different things. I'm going to file a RICO lawsuit against you. And this judge, very kind, very even handed judge. One of my more favorite, one of my favorite judges to be in front of just simply asks her why her arguments she's making right now matter. And he was getting at the point that they don't. Um, and I've seen an uptick recently. I think social media has spurned some of this of, many fathers going just burn the bridges throw everything out there and start threatening judges start threatening evaluators that they're going to sue them that they're going to do this they're going to do that um it, it's at the end of the day that's not an effective way for you to be successful in court not saying you're not right i'm not saying it's not justified but what i'm saying is that attacking individuals in the system, no matter how right you may be, it's only going to hurt, harm your individual case. And I talk on here a lot. I think there are three prongs to movement, to creating change. Obviously, it's going to be legislatively. Um, I, I'm a strong believer that there are going to be some lawsuits at the federal level that get through, that, and there have been some that are creating change. But that third prong is dads need to be successful right now. And so at this point in time, we kind of have to play the game. You have to give yourself the best chance, the best odds at a positive outcome. And diving in and going fire and brimstone, telling the judge you're going to file federal lawsuits and RICO and demanding every judge in front of you recuse themselves, a lot of times is going to harm your case that's directly in front of you. And although you may say, hey, big picture, long run, it may may help the cause, probably not. Um, 
I think that then in a lot of senses, if you are going to be doing that type of stuff, I know, I know several individuals that are, you don't necessarily need to tell the judge you're in front of right now, just go file your case. Uh, there, there's absolutely no reason why, um, you need to do that and, and make the spectacle that it is. So that's just something I've seen. And I think there are, there are some, some people on social media, they're egging it on, urging it. it. It's just not effective. And I had a conversation with my client after we got done with our hearing that morning and our conversation circled around how crazy she sounded, how unhinged she sounded. Her words accomplished nothing, but the way she acted definitely left an impression on the judge. So I, I, when, when you're going into court, especially when you're a pro se litigant and you're trying to have the judge hear you out, I know it can be a struggle at times to have the judge truly hear you out. You have to, you, you, you have to really bear down and, and focus on, on what's at hand in that moment. Because when you get off topic, when you go on rants, you're probably going to lose the judge's attention and they're probably going to lose their patience. Not saying it's fair, not saying it's right, but so I think I think some individuals now are losing sight of of having success and, and maximizing their relationship with their children over being what they believe is principled when they go into court. So just something I've seen, saw it firsthand this week. I've seen an increase of it on social media. And a lot of times it, it also plays into the history of this movement. It's moved into the mainstream, but the history of this movement was very fringe and was painted as an angry dad's movement. And we don't want to go backwards. Um, the father's rights movement, social medias, the biggest segment of growth are the women uh, becoming more welcoming to them. I've had guests on that have talked about statistics and um, increasing, there's an increasing number of women who are losing their relationships with their children, even though they're fit, willing, and able um, due to the way the system operates. And, and we're going to need that coalition. We're going to need those individuals to make change in the other 48 states. So I'll, I'll hop in now. We'll take some questions. So we'll start out. What's going on, Andy? We'll take your question first here. So Andy asks, do you believe we have a SCOTUS which would consider ruling on a case which might grant males equal rights to parenting time? Why is there no sense of urgency? Um, so the short answer is it doesn't really matter what the Supreme Court would do. The likelihood of a strictly custody case making it to the Supreme Court is essentially zero. Um, there, there would have to be some sort of procedural or underlying issue uh, because of the, the different standards. If you essentially go file um, a divorce case, go file a child custody case um, in federal court, it will immediately get dismissed. So the, the opportunity for the Supreme Court to rule directly on something along the lines of equal and shared parenting is almost zero. Most of the case law that we have uh, regarding family courts in, involves um, procedural stuff. It involves benefits. Um, it involves uh, child welfare, like a CPS. So th there's, there's almost no shot that the Supreme Court would end up in a situation in which they are mandating equal and shared parenting. 
And we also have to realize and remember that there is not a state that that utilizes um, not, there's not a specific state law that I'm aware of that sex is a determining factor. Most states actually explicitly exclude sex in their decision making. So I, I don't even know how much of an impact a Supreme Court decision may or may not have. Um, and I know, uh, Andy, you and I have had conversations and making kind of comparing it to um, gay marriage and how that change occurred in the Supreme Court back in 2015. I, I don't know if a direct case um, would ever make it to having that decision. So I guess that's kind of the long answer to um, that really only needed a short response. But realistically, um, we won't see that in, in our lifetime. That doesn't preclude a tertiary issue. I'm aware of some procedural stuff, some um, qualified immunity stuff that I think has some legs. But even even if it gets to the Court of Appeals, the Federal Court of Appeals, uh, it's something like the Supreme Court picks up 1% of cases um, that are petitioned to the Supreme Court. All right, so... more of a comment here, but I think this is something that um, needs to be talked about and needs to be addressed more. And I see a lot of individuals doing some great work here at the Father's Rights Movement. We have the crisis hotline. Um, Greg Ellis in his book, The Respondent, cited uh, men are eight, eight times more likely to commit suicide during family law proceedings, during child custody proceedings. So, so it is a serious issue. Um, it's, it's one that I think a lot of us end up in and we don't realize this world exists. We've never experienced it. We don't exactly know how it works. And then um, we, we end up in a situation where the most important thing in our lives, our children are being ripped away from us or we're having periods of time that we're going without seeing them. Um, so it, it's, it's something that's far too common um, and it's much more common with men than it is with, with women. So I think it, it's something that um, discussions need to be had uh, because it is a serious issue and it's something we can't be afraid to talk about. And, and I, I'm in a lot of the groups where men will, will make suicidal comments, will do things, and there are there are hundreds of men who jump in and are willing to talk at any time of day. I know a lot of groups... Um, you'll see posts that'll come up where someone will post at two or 3 AM. Hey, I need to talk to someone like I'm really struggling. And there are individuals who are out there just willing to have a conversation. So, um, it's a serious issue. And I think the larger we build this community, the larger we build this coalition, there's just going to be more people out there that are going to be willing and able to, to discuss their struggles and discuss their situations to, and discuss what they've been through to help men. Uh, navigate through this process. Uh, one of the first pieces of advice I give any potential client is, um, my first piece is, a, if you can do it, go find yourself a good therapist. If you can't, if you say that's not your thing, then you need to find a family member, a very close friend, and you need to say, hey, I'm going to come to you with anything and everything, um, and I, I may just need to talk I may need just to hear someone talk, 
but you're going to be that person I come to, to just tell everything to, to get everything off my chest that I don't hide anything. Um, I think that, that can also be effective, but, um, Jacob, that's, that's a fantastic point. So, I mean, men and mental health in general, um, we need to be more comfortable talking about it. And this, this kind of, kind of adds on to it. Um, I've been denied DV services, um, Ryan here, uh, that that's also a, a serious issue. Um, if any of you, if you haven't seen it, um, it can be hard to watch at times, but it can be eye opening. the red pill. I think you can watch it for like a dollar 99 on YouTube. Uh, but it, it's a, a feminist went behind the scenes in the men's rights movement. And one of the points or one of the things that's discussed at the time, there were two men's domestic violence shelters in the entire United States. And there are thousands upon thousands that service women and children. So that goes right along the same lines as um, mental health or with the mental health. Um, there, there's not the necessarily resources available. I think as, as we continue to move more and more mainstream as, as these issues such as um, the statistics come out, you study to study, it's anywhere between uh, 30 and 70% of victims of domestic violence are men. Most studies have it usually 40 to 60% of domestic violence victims are men. And I think as we start to come to terms with that, that it's not big, bad man, little helpless woman, that it can be initiated from both sides. I think you'll see more services Um if you're looking for something, if you're in need of something, um, reach out to me and we, I do have some options that they, they can, they can help really nationwide in terms of services or, or helping you find services. If you are the victim of domestic violence and do need that help. And uh, Summer here, you make a, uh, a really good point, and this goes along. Uh, more men need to reach out for help, including to domestic violence organizations. That, that's one of the biggest things that, and, and we'll tie it back into success in family court. I, I have clients who have been stabbed, ran over with cars, have had cars burnt to a crisp by their, their co-parent. Um, and just other vile things. And they, they refuse to do anything. They refuse to say anything. They refuse to reach out to anyone. A couple of them, the police got involved, not by their choosing, and they refused to cooperate. And then down the line, 
things get nasty in the divorce or in the child custody. And the judge looks out and says, like, this happened four years ago and you never did anything about it. Or you gave, even though you were severely injured, you gave statements denying she had any wrongdoing, even though all the evidence was contrary to that. So I think learning to be comfortable and understanding that there's no shame in reaching out for help really in any in any nature, in any way, uh, there, there's nothing wrong with that. All right, we got Megan here. This is a really good question. So with more and more people cohabitating with children without marrying, do you see a future for automatic uh, legitimation of, uh, of father same as in wedlock? That's a tough question. Um, and different states handle this differently. So in California, all you have to do is at the hospital sign voluntary declaration of paternity and you automatically have the same exact rights in theory as the mother. Now, I know some states when they're a child, when you when you break up with someone that you have a child with, you're not married, you separate. The father has to go through a process, I think. And Florida is one of those states. Um, I think those states could streamline that process. Um, to better protect children and their relationships with their fathers, uh, because it does take time to get that pro go through that process, and in a lot of instances, it, it in theory could be prevented or in theory is unnecessary. So I think a lot of the conversation in the legal community is that we're going to see fewer and fewer divorce cases and more and more purely child custody cases, and. In, in my experience and in a lot of the attorneys I speak with, um, some cases there, there's always going to be, whether it be they were together for the child's five or the child's three months old, there may be questions that get raised around, are you the father? Um, and, and so some of those situations, just like 50-50, a presumption of 50-50, won't necessarily get rid of, of all the issues in family court. A, a streamlined process won't get rid of all the issues, but it will, it would help. So I think that's something that's going to have to be addressed in the coming decade, just because the number of children born to parents who are not married is continuing to increase. And so those states that require dads to jump through hoops, even if the child's five and they've been there the entire time, those states are, th those states are probably candidates to create some sort of streamlined process. But at the same front, there's been, there's been a fight um, in the past around someone gets named the father, and then it was a struggle to get them removed. That's one of those situations that actually has been to the Supreme Court, where a man was found to not be the father after several years, and it ended up going all the way to the Supreme Court to get the state to stop charging him child support. So it's a double-edged sword when it comes to that, but it's something we're going to have to find better solutions for as the number of children born to unmarried parents continues to increase.
we'll take another one from summer here. So from New York State, with the newest data coming out regarding the child maltreatment and the likelihood of mothers committing these acts, how would it? Uh, how should it? Uh, we use this data against DV arguments. So the data is pretty clear when it comes to child maltreatment, child abuse, uh, deaths of children. They are significantly more likely to be harmed or even killed in the mother's care compared to the father's. And and the data I've really dug into is that if you, you it takes a look at four parties. So you have the mother's new partner, you have the mother you have the father and you have the father's new partner. The individual most likely to harm a child is the mother's new partner. And it's not even close. It's something like three out of every four instances of it. It's the mother's new partner. And in second, mother and father are fairly close in most studies, but most of them, it's more likely for the mother to be the, uh, to perpetuate that maltreatment or that child abuse than it is the father and then the individual in the whole situation that almost never has any issues with this is is father's new partner. So, I mean, I think how do we use this data against DV arguments? It's going to depend on who you talk to and, and in what context. Because obviously women's organizations, domestic violence groups, they want to paint a, a very broad brush in an emotional argument. Um, and it, it may be, it may be hard and they're probably just going to flatly deny a lot of the data that says child's more likely to be harmed in mom's care. Where if you're talking about in a situation where you're having a conversation with a legislator, that may be that, that, that data, um, being familiar with those studies, being familiar with that data and being able to explain that could effectively sway them because in any of these states where we're trying to get legislation passed, um, the, the, the DV groups, the women's organizations probably have lobbyists that literally have desks. They have offices right outside the courthouse. Or, I mean, not the courthouse, but the, the state house. So um, knowing the data and knowing your audience, I think how to use it um, kind of on a broad brush. All right, so we'll take Oscar's question here. So, Oscar, judge ordered X to get a job, but still hasn't. It's been a year, and I'm going to child support court soon. Can I use this against her? So every state's child support laws are going to be different. The short answer is yes, you can use that against her. Most states, including the state I'm in, California, they allow the judge or the commissioner that is hearing the child support matter to do what's called impute income. So a lot of times if they claim, hey, I can't find a job, I can't get a job, they can impute whatever income on them they deem fit. A lot of times I see it, it is they impute minute 40 hours of minimum wage Let's just say they're underemployed, they're working part-time, they're not working at all. You see them impute 
minimum wage onto that individual. If they have special degrees, if they have a special background, like they're a lawyer, they're a doctor, they have a master's degree and they're not working, the judge could in theory impute uh, even more than that minimum wage onto them. So it depends on your state. But um, if you take a look at your, your state laws around child support, you'll be able to see most states do allow to the judge to impute income onto them. So if you're coming back a year later and you say, Your Honor, last year you told her she needed to get a job, she hasn't, um, I, I'd request that you impute income on her. And here's what I believe she should be making. Um, and and that, that's uh, unfortunately, that's about that. That's depends on the state, but that's, that's about all you can, you can ask for. And a lot of times it'll be up to the judge or the child support agency if they do that. I'll take this one next here. So Clinton, they need to make law automatic paternity. So I'm assuming that you mean automatic presumed paternity to the man. That is, is probably a slippery slope that we don't want to go down. Um, there are, Kenneth Rosa had actually an individual on the show probably about three months ago who fought a years long battle he was on the birth certificate in the state of Texas. The state of Texas was going after him for child support. They discover he's not the father. And he spent years fighting the state of Texas for them to stop charging him child support. So although there are certain situations where you'd like, yeah, that would be nice. That would make things easier. That would allow us to protect a child's relationship with their father that's probably taking it a step too far down a slippery slope that we really don't want to go. Um, unfortunately it's a, it's, it's a very, very, it's more common than I think people realize, uh, where a woman doesn't know who the father is. And I think, I think it, people would probably be amazed at the number of times the woman really doesn't know, but, ends up guessing right or or the man who ends up pursuing custody or rights to the child is the father even though the woman couldn't be 100 sure so i don't necessarily think that is a, a direction that we need to go but states do need a more streamlined process so we'll take ryan here this this is probably uh i would say one of the two or three most common questions what about fighting false claims in court made against you? So I think that this is probably the, the most frightening struggle men go through in, in family court because of the burden of proof, because of, um, because of how common they are. And the hardest thing to do and to do is to deny or to prove that something that didn't happen didn't occur. So it can be very, very challenging. 
because if there's no evidence it happened, you're going to have to go find evidence that it didn't happen. And a couple weeks ago, I had um, Keith Flynn and Brian Jackson on from the state of Oklahoma. And um, you could probably go to my YouTube page, The Father's Rights Attorney. We probably have a clip of that discussion. And Keith goes into a great deal of detail as to how he attacks these allegations. So you, you, ha you will have some tools at your disposal. For example, you'll have different discovery tools. Uh, so number one is putting your timeline, your story together, how things occurred, what happened, what didn't happen. So you have your solid timeline. And then it's going to be about getting as much information from the other side, whether it be through written discovery, your interrogatories, your request to produce, your request to admit, and then ultimately probably the, the number one tool, it doesn't get used a whole lot because of time and because of expense. But if you're able to do it, if you're fighting false accusations, if you can get an attorney to do a deposition, to, to dive into your case, get your timeline put together and then depose the other party, uh, that, that's, that's probably the most effective way to, to attack those issues because it can be increasingly frustrating because a lot of times it ends up being, he said, she said, if she's claiming on Tuesday, July 21st, you shoved her in your home and the kids were in bed, there's not going to be any evidence. Most likely, unless you have security cameras in your home, there's not going to be evidence that happened. There's not going to be any evidence that it didn't happen. And so it's, it's going to be about putting as much information together as possible. And a lot of times that means getting the other party who's making the accusation to have to speak on the record as much as possible. And you can kind of pick apart their story. So we'll take uh, K.M. Ross here. So how do you get the mother's new baby's father's income? So I'm, 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 I'm thinking you're saying the co-parent's new partner's income included when considering child support. He provides for, but they aren't married. So she's just on welfare and collecting child support, even though we have 50-50. So once again, child support is state by state. Here in the state of California, a new partner's income for purposes of child support is almost irrelevant. So essentially the only, only time it comes into play may be pushing you into a new tax bracket and actually lowering your child support obligation. Uh, so unfortunately in the state of California, and, and you see this some, they get a new partner, they make no, they, they don't work, the, other, the new partner supports them then they, it doesn't get included for purposes of child support. So essentially what ends up being is that person's spending money, that person's fund money is dad paying child support. Uh, it should, 
it can impact spousal support or alimony. Uh, in, in the state of California, that is included for purposes of alimony. If someone else is, you're cohabitating with someone else, um, you're married to someone else, that, uh, that can definitely impact it. And, and I would tell anyone that's getting divorced that is, is going to come to some sort of settlement agreement on their divorce to ensure if you're going to be paying spousal support or alimony, that you explicitly put clauses in there that that, that spousal support or alimony, there's a, in California, we put in there, there's a presumption that less spousal support is needed if you get re, if you, if you're cohabitating with someone. And a lot of times marriage just ends the spousal support altogether. So you want to make sure if you're going through a divorce, you're going to have to pay spousal support. You're going to want to make sure things like that are included. But in in mo in a lot of states, uh, the new new spouse's income or the new boyfriend's income, the new girlfriend's income won't come into play when it comes to child support. But once again, it, it can go back to if they're not working, uh, that may be a situation where you request the court's impute income onto them. So Ryan again here, should I report to the authorities my ex-wife calling my father, telling him people are hunting me where I live? Yes, uh, that is a death threat. And in most states, if it can be proven, that could be a felony. So that, that's something that's uh, very, very serious. And if there's no proof or no evidence of it, unfortunately, the longer you wait before reporting it, the less serious authorities are going to take it. But if, if you're getting threatened in any way, um, your, your immediate response should be to let the authorities know that that is occurring. All right, so we'll take Nate's question here. So Nate asks, what can I do if my ex left with my oldest daughter and she signed a summons to the court before leaving and she never went? So moveaways, different things like that are, are going to be different in different states. So the standard in California is, and, and it's this way in a lot of states, once a case is opened, once a case has been started, and child custody, even if there's been a final judgment, if there's been a settlement, whatever it may be, child custody is always considered an open issue until the child turns 18. So in California and a lot of states, if there's an open case, if there's an open case, then um, she either has to get written permission from you or court approval. 
So in, in California, especially over the last year, it's not been uncommon. To, we've seen an increase in move away cases. Um, parents looking to take their children to places where it's where it's open or more affordable to live. Um, but they can't just go do it on their own and it's usually frowned upon. So based on my reading of your question, it sounds like you have an open case, which I would, I would most likely want to file immediately um, in a, for an emergency hearing, an ex parte hearing, to get in front of the judge and let them know what happened. Um, if you don't have an open case, in theory, if there's no open case, both parties can do whatever they want with the child. Um, and so if there wasn't an open case and she did that, the state you're currently in, if this just happened, probably still has jurisdiction and you need to be down at the courthouse filing the appropriate paperwork to get that case started. Um, in a lot of states, moving away, doing something like that is enough to get an emergency hearing granted and get you in front of a judge quicker. So, um, and on the front of if, if a case had just started and she left and she isn't responding to anything like that, each state's going to have their own process for what we call defaults. Um, as, as some of you have probably learned firsthand, if you don't participate in your divorce process, um, then it will move on without you and or your child custody process they will move on and make orders without your participation and you probably won't like them so if a case is started a case is open a case is pending um you probably need to talk to a lawyer locally um, or at least in your state on if you can file for default All right, so we'll take JM's question here. I have custody of my two daughters and I've requested child support, but it has been four months and the judge still hasn't made the mother pay child support. What can I do? So um, I, if it's anything, I, and I, I don't know what state you are in, but if it's anything like the state of California, if you go to the Department of Child Support Services today and request the paperwork and fill out the paperwork, you may be six months out before you get in front of a judge to get child support ordered. By the time Department of Child Support Services or your agency in your state gets the paperwork submitted and gets you a court date. I know right now in California, we are like five months out, so it may be more than six months. By the time you go to the courthouse, get the paperwork filled out, and then get a return date to be in front of a judge, um, if it's tied to your custody case, you may have to, um, so some states require you to, to, uh, motion for judgment. So, um, that, that's a, it's child support again, very, very state specific. A lot of states, um, including California, Texas has some wild laws around this, but they will backdate child support. One of the things in California that gets a lot of guys is the fact that they, uh, they will backdate it to date of filing. So let's just say in June or July in California, you fought that you filed for child support and you're not going to get into court until January, 2022. They will, they can, they can backdate that child support. And let's just say for round number's sake, you get ordered to pay $1,000 worth of child support. Well, they can go back and say, this was filed in June. So we're going to go June, July, August, September, October, November, December, 
January. Okay, so your balance right now is $8,000 in child support. So a lot of states are able to do that, um, whether you have to ask for it or it automatically happens. That may it may vary from state to state and how aggressive states are. Like if you're in the state of Texas, they're extremely aggressive about going after child support. You probably don't even have to ask other states. You may have to ask and um, and see exactly what the laws say they can do. It looks like you followed up here. So it's like you're in Massachusetts and you're already in front of a judge, waited eight months to be heard. Unfortunately, the post-COVID era we're in, um, I, I just today got court dates into February and March on a couple cases. Um, so it's an unfortunate piece of, of what we're dealing with right now. I would say if you, if you have an attorney, you need to talk to him about what the process is to gain some clarity, gain some understanding um, if you're doing it pro se. Um, if you don't, it may be worth, um, paying a little bit of money to a consult for a consultation or doing some of your own research. Some law firms in your state probably have some blog posts about exactly what needs to be done to make sure you've checked all the boxes to get that order and to get child support started. Not even going to read this full question before we put it up here. I just see an uh, interesting issue from uh, Jefferson. So ex-wife before court went homeless five days after my daughter was returned to her mother. She failed to notify the judge during the modification hearing. Could that be considered bad faith if after court she says she is now they are now homeless? We have evidence of repossession of property was August 19th and uh, she returned on the 14th um, court was September 3rd. So I think that's probably a situation where you may fall in a, she may fall in a little bit of a, a gray area. I think we would probably look at it and say ethically, um, if she's demanding a modification, if she's trying to gain more custody and she goes homeless in the process, um, she should probably let the courts know that's probably something the courts should inquire to. I know that one of the the big things we always do with with men um, when I represent them is we lay out what the living situation is going to look like very specifically. They're going to have their own bedroom or they're, they're going to sleep. They have their own bed, but they're going to sleep in the same bedroom. This is their support system. So um, that, that's probably grounds to get back into court on and say, hey, they're homeless. This is a serious issue. My daughter's in danger. She doesn't have appropriate living situation. Um, but from, from my experience in a post-COVID world, judges have been very, very lenient towards living situations. In, in the past, I've seen where, hey, if you don't have their own bedroom, if you don't have their own bed, whatever it may be, they come down hard and they, they're very limiting in terms of what custody is. But, but I would say over the last three to four months, especially in situations where it's like, dad has one bedroom or mom has one bedroom, they aren't as punitive in the way they rule. So I think that's probably going to, the judge may not appreciate it. Uh, that That's probably the way I would want to frame it is like, hey, your honor, they misled you. They intentionally misled you. Uh, they, they failed to disclose material facts of their situation it, it, to ensure that they got 
an outcome more of what they wanted and make it seem like they kind of bait and switch the judge. But I, I, I don't necessarily think there would be anything punitive because in, in a post-COVID world, judges I've seen have been very, very careful when it comes to uh, living situations and people going through hard times financially. All right, we'll take Ty's question here. We'll probably take two or three more questions. So go ahead and get your questions uh, in the comments section. So apparently my ex has decided to represent herself during our mediation. I don't understand why and neither does my lawyer. What does this say to the court when she shows up by herself? How does this play out in mediation? So I, I don't think on its face the judge or the mediator, depending on your state, how they do them. I don't exactly know the, the situation. Is it, is it a mediation position where the judge is going to get involved to try to get to a solution? Or is this court-ordered, private mediation, whatever it may be? Um, but I don't think they'll look at it on its face and have an issue. But you have an advantage. So your attorney should be able to educate you should be able to tell you generally what's going to happen, should be able to tell you what to expect, and should help you get your thoughts in order. So um, I had Alabama attorney Michael Lambert on probably about three months ago, and he he's a mediator, and we, we spoke on that. And um, one of the things your attorney should be doing is helping you put together a list of things that matter. So going in knowing the two, three, four things that really, really matter to you uh, so that you're more prepared to be able to come to a resolution. Um, a lot of times I see pro se litigants get tied up either in they don't trust the entire process and so they end up making outlandish requests and they lose sight of what they actually want um, I see them, they, they get bad advice, uh, from people. I see this very commonly where they'll say fire an attorney who's going to get them a, a good deal and get this situation settled. And then they start taking advice from their aunt who has been divorced four times and thinks she's a human child support calculator and knows everything there is to know about courts and child custody. So you have an advantage. I don't think the courts are going to necessarily hold it against her. I would say your odds of coming to a resolution when it's pro se, when either side or one side is pro se, are probably less than if both are represented. Um, in, in my experience, a lot of times uh, when, not all the time, and it may not be your specific situation, but a lot of times when... Uh, when women will fire their attorneys leading into something like this will be very, very, very close to a deal. We'll be her, her attorney and myself maybe on the same wavelength on what we need to do or what we need. And um, because of that, uh, and they, they think they deserve more, they want something different. They'll fire their attorney uh, because they think they can do, they can get more, they can do a better job themselves. So I, I always tell clients when the other side fires their attorney and goes pro se or is just pro se from the beginning. It just makes things a little bit more unpredictable. 
uh, when you have counsel on the other side, there's a lot of stuff that uh, you know kind of how it's going to go down. So that, that would be my only piece. It's, it's, you're probably less likely to get a deal done, but going into mediation, you need to focus on yourself and what you really want to get as good an outcome as you possibly can. All right, so we'll take Luis' question about child support here. I have a very serious question. According to California, I owe $84,000 in arrears, which I am paying since it was put into order in 2015. The original amount was $42K. Apparently, they are charging interest for being behind and owing interest. I cannot and will not ever be able to pay this amount. My ex committed adultery while I was deployed in Iraq and left for some other dude ever since 08 and I agreed to a verbal agreement at the time to give her only a certain amount of child support. Um, let me see if the, I guess the, the, the only let me see on, on here this far down. So in the, in the state of California, um, right now they have a program going on, uh, around for, if you make certain payments around forgiving some interest, which a lot of times would go to the state or, or essentially forgiving portions of money that the state would normally collect. So I would, number one is I'd reach out to your local child support agency and see if they are what they're doing right now, how they can help you. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, usually without the help of your co-parent, you're, you're not going to be able to get those, what the money that's owed to her to be forgiven. And um, in regards to having the verbal agreement, this is why you always go through the court. If you agree to something, you need to need to go get it consummated through the courts so that something like this doesn't happen. Um, if she's claiming you didn't pay her child support when you were paying her child support, that's something that you probably need to bring to the Department of Child Support Services attention. Um but but sometimes just the way that the laws are set up, child support when you get behind on it can be challenging. Um, I'm I'm helping out with a situation right now where the cup the the former couple actually pulled child support out of the courts, did it privately for three years before they went back to the courts. Well, dad's done paying child support now, and mom's going back and wants those three years audited, and dad was paying her cash during that time. So um, it's one of those things that you had to look into the specific situation. Uh, the first phone call I'd want to make would be the Department of Child Support Services to see what they're able and willing to do. Um, if you're talking about $42,000 in interest, uh, you may be able to cut some sort of deal um, if you're able to pay some, some sort of lump sum on it that can at least make that amount manageable.
All right, Charles, this is a really good question. So have you ever had a client or know anyone that has sued the city and CPS for negligence, psychological abuse um, to yourself and keeping your son from you? Um, so I, I, I was originally trained as a labor and employment attorney um, and worked for a period of time as a management side labor and employment attorney and my firm represented the city of Chicago and the state of Illinois. Um, those major cities get sued all the time and have gigantic slush funds to pay out settlements. Gigantic slush funds, like millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars. And um, so I have seen situations where um, the city's been sued for, for different things. So... CPS, though, and involving child custody, you would probably have. So number one is we've seen, depending on the state, we have uh, seen that they grant certain agencies qualified immunity and they grant certain individuals qualified immunity. So you may run into that with CPS and you would probably have to um, you'd probably have to prove actual um bad intent on CPS's part to get that going in any direction. Um, I do have one situation right now where child and family services, which is what California calls child protective services in a county didn't find uh, that abuse had been occurring. And then a couple months later, uh, statements were made to police that it in fact was occurring. And we feel like child and family services is trying to cover their tracks because they maybe didn't do as thorough an investigation as they should have. Um, so I, I currently have had a situation like that where we're trying to navigate through, but that's an ongoing custody piece. So the, the lawsuit against CPS or a city would kind of be a back burner, but, but that could be something that would, that would be something interesting. Um, but I, I don't know how you, how exactly you would tie the city into it. But um, CPS definitely has been sued a lot. There's a lot of uh, instances. So uh, Connie Regulie, who's who's been on this show before, she's had a couple of very well-known cases in the state of Tennessee. Um, she does a lot of advocating for children. Um, and she's had a couple of cases where they have went at the local welfare agency and been successful. So it's definitely happened. Uh, but it, it's going to depend on the setup and what your state allows and what you're actually able to prove. Because I, I find that the biggest challenge a lot of times with these child, with, with these say child endangerment, child abuse, maltreatment is what can we actually prove and what is just the conclusions we've come to. Um, you can't, you can't walk in and say, Hey, I think child abuse is happening because there's a good chance that if you have no evidence, if there is no other evidence of it than what you're saying, they're going to find it unsubstantiated. So I think you would probably have to find actual, you'd actually have to find someone who intentionally did something wrong. Um, but it's definitely happened. Or someone who's gotten too aggressive and not followed policy and procedure about taking a kid out of a home or, or that type of thing. So um, it's definitely possible. You have to take a look at the specific situation, though. All right, we're about 55 minutes. I'll take uh, one more question. 
right. So, Shiraja, this is more of a comment. We'll still take one more question. But, uh, so, yeah, Oklahoma actually, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, talked to Keith and Brian about that. Oklahoma here in the next couple of weeks are going to have a couple of laws go into place. They were one of the states that got facts, findings, and conclusions of law included in, um, in their new laws now that, that passed this past year. So um, if you're in the state of Oklahoma now and the judge makes a decision, they will have to provide facts, findings, and conclusions of law. So they're going to have to state their reason on the record. Kind of the first step, um, Tennessee got something similar. West Virginia got something similar this past year. So a little bit more accountability to judges. Um, and, and I believe Oklahoma is going to be one of the states that's going to have a 50-50 bill get introduced again this year uh, and hopefully build on the momentum of this past year. I'll take uh, Charles' question here. So what are we doing in California to get dads 50-50 rights? So uh, specific to the state of California, um, to be very candid, I've, had, I, I've personally had conversations with a handful of legislators, and there's not much movement on that front. Um, it, it's, it's one of those things. There are some individuals who are willing to willing to support it, but um, there aren't many people at this moment that are in in the legislature, in the state assembly, in the Senate, who are willing to put their name on it. Um, and that's something we've seen. Uh, most of the states that have had movement, uh, you think Kentucky has their 50-50 law, a red state. Arkansas has their 50-50 law, red state. Um, and then you take a look at the states last year, West Virginia, Oklahoma, Tennessee, um, Texas, that passed different laws. Um, they're red states. Texas actually on their Republican Party, although it's not a partisan issue, it's, uh, it's tended to be the first moving states have been the red states, have been the more conservative states. Um, and, and I think that the, the direction we've tried to take it and the direction that we've tried to move the conversations is we're obviously being very child centric and knowing that we, we I've targeted um, and have a handful of people working with me that have targeted legislators who run big on education or child development um, and talking about the benefits of having both parents involved when it comes to high school graduation, college grades, school suspensions, um, teen pregnancy, healthy relationships. So we, we have had some productive conversations with legislators who typically support education-based bills. Um, but being quite frank, they're, they're at this moment, last I heard 12 states that we're going to have 50-50 bills get introduced this year. Um, realistically california is probably further down the line um than some of these states that we're hoping are in the next couple of years so um yeah if you if you're interested in getting involved um charles uh dm my my facebook page and we can make sure you get on the list we we do have occasionally have zoom calls 
where where we've educated people, where we get people started, and we we, don't, we really want people statewide to be able to reach out to their specific um, assembly person, their senator, uh, because that that a lot of times is the most effective. Hey, I am I am one of your constituents, and here's a concern I have. Rather than say me being in Riverside County, reaching out to someone in Sacramento or someone in the Bay Area. So yeah, just drop me drop me a DM um, at the uh, the Father's Rights Attorney, and we can get you on the list to uh, get you uh, get you involved to the level you want to be involved. And I'll tell you this: whether it be the Father's Rights Movement, which are obviously broadcasting on their social channels right now, um, or any other group. Um, find, find a group that fits best with you and, and volunteer some time. Their, their groups are always looking for individuals, whether it be to help run social media, to help contact legislators. We're going to be getting into a season here um, in the next two months. A lot of states, these states that are going to have bills get introduced, we're going to start seeing those bills pop up and legislative sessions are going to start right after the first of the year. And so everybody's going to be looking for volunteers to be able to visit state houses, hit the phones, do things like that. So um, you, you can definitely find a home if, if you're if you're wanting to help uh, move this forward. Um, it, it, you, there's any number of groups. If it, the father's rights movement's not the fit, whether it be Americans for Equal and Shared Parenting does phenomenal work. Um, there's a couple groups based out of the state of Texas that do phenomenal work. Um, Find a group, volunteer some time. Um, it'll also give you some perspective of some people who have have been in the fight for a long time. So uh, with that, we will uh, wrap up our show tonight. I want to thank everyone for uh, listening in, and we will be back next week, uh, Thursday uh, at 8 p.m. Eastern time, 5 Pacific and uh, I promise you, we will have a guest next week. So we'll, we'll go back to our interview format next week. So we'll see you guys next week. Have a nice night.